The Mind Sponsor for today is upcoming podcast series, Personality Sleuths. Personality Sleuths will be co-hosted by Dr. J. Galen Buckwalter, whose career includes being the founding chief science officer of eHarmony and me, leveraging my experience as a venture capitalist and entrepreneur. We will analyze personality using a speech-based proprietary AI algorithm, along with the clues evident in social media and the popular press. Each episode will dissect the life of someone famous who gained the trust of many before becoming notorious for duping people, committing a crime, or losing exorbitant amounts of money, all while the clues were there all along and how they spoke. Tune in soon. Our heart sponsor for today is Decoding Success. Decoding Success enables you to get a feel for the personality of the people with whom you are interacting passively, without alerting the party that you are doing it, such as would happen typically when a questionnaire is used, the only other means to capture the analyzable data. Using text from emails, messages, or a Twitter account, Decoding Success can optimize your chances for a successful encounter by prepping you ahead of time. Want to know about that entrepreneur in whose company you are contemplating an investment prior to the pitch meeting? Want to screen which candidates will be best suited to join your team before you even meet them? Visit D-E-C-O-D-I-N-G-S-U-C-C-E-S-S.com. On this episode, we have Dr. Elia Grigoris. Elia was born in Athens, Greece. He was branded a happy baby since birth. An avid competitive swimmer, Elia migrated to Los Angeles to avail himself of the best training centers in the world at the age of 11. He attended UCLA for his undergrad and earned a doctorate in psychology there as well. He relocated to Boulder, Colorado and established a thriving therapy practice. When he faced a personal health crisis, he pivoted to touch more people's lives. He has become an executive coach advising Fortune 100 companies, a worldwide speaker, and published author. Elia, thank you so much for being on our show. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for some time. We got connected through our mutual friend, Jeff Bietto, Um, and it was a superb podcast episode that, uh, um, uh, that you were a guest on. Um, and, uh, I've just, um, I love everything that you stand for all that you're doing, um, okay. happiness being the core and, uh, it's a great life journey that, uh, you've been through, um, to, to get you there. And uh, I, I think it'll be very inspirational for, for our audience uh, as we go through that story. Um, I'd love to start from the very beginning. And um, you, you're born, being born in Athens, Greece. And um, uh, there's a great story you share about uh, the nurse that gave you your branding. <laughs> so I'd love for you to share that. <laughs> of course. So as I had the opportunity, you know, to speak and lecture uh, around the world on uh, on happiness and wellness, I, I've had people ask me, "Well, Doctor, how did you become a happiness expert?" And I said, "Well, it's kind of a funny story because that started on the very first day I was born." And people kind of look at me kind of funny, like that's not possible. I'm like, actually, it is. <laughs> so I was born a, a a long time ago in Athens, Greece. Uh, you know, back in the day when. You didn't have any Facebook Live or Snapchat or anything like that. No cameras in the uh, in the room. And uh, as the story was told with me growing up, my dad kind of you know shows up, kind of a tough uh, Greek guy, you know, smoking whiskey and all that stuff. And he comes up to this little window, and they, and they had five little babies. We're all wrapped up in the same white generic blankets back in the day. And he turns to the nurse, and goes, "Which one's my son?" You know, 
And I guess I had a smile on my face at the time. So the nurse turns to my dad. He goes, your son, he's the happy one. <laughs> Boom. You know, I was branded the happy one. So the story being told growing up in my own home is like, well, you came out of the womb happy. You've always had a smile on your face. You're like, happy, happy, happy. Anyway, fast forward now 25 years. Now I'm in graduate school getting my PhD in psychology. And the, uh, the professor is talking to us about the whole idea of nature versus nurture. In other words, is it a generic predisposition that makes us who we are, or is that an environment? Of course, you know, both contribute. But I had this terrible thought. I'm like, wait a minute. What if my dad shows up like 15 minutes late, got stuck in traffic or whatever, shows up to the same little window, asks the same nurse the same question, and at that very moment, you know, I have terrible stomach pains, and I'm screaming my head up, I'm like, and the nurse says, my dad goes, your son, he's the cranky one. <laughs> and then that's the story I'm told growing up, you know, when yeah. you came out of the womb cranky, you've been all, you've always been a miserable little beep, you know. <laughs> it would have so changed now, the narrative in the course of your life. <laughs> it, it, it very well could. And obviously, you know, having lectures in front of thousands of people that, and have heard their stories, you know, these are my own informal statistics, but you know, there are a lot of people that have had other positive brands. For example, yeah. the athletic one, the smart one, the cute one, the princess, uh, you know, the loving, the kind, the sweet, the, you know, gentle. If you have a brand like that, my goodness, count your blessing. Like, pat yourself on the back and say, boy, have I been fortunate. Because for me, the happiness brand, I have embraced that. Like, I've lived that my whole life. Not that I've been happy my whole life, because there have been tragedies and the ups and downs Absolutely. of, uh, you know, human existence, of course. But for the most part, I've had an optimistic view. I feel things are going to work out in the end. And, and I had just carry that uh, positive loving energy with me uh, most of the time. That's However, there are far too many people that have had very negative brands. Right. Some of them are horrific, I seem Like, seriously, they're, they're just terrible. And, and you might think to yourself, well, who would say stuff like that to their kids who are growing up? Believe me. Yeah, the top three, I'll just go to the top three. And they're terrible. And these are people and my clients and my patients have told me, it's not like I came up with them, that most common ones are the ugly one, the oh, fat God. one, or the stupid one. Oh, dear. Now, look, imagine how devastating they would be to someone's self-worth and self-esteem. Exactly. Absolutely. So about four or five years ago, I just, let me finish this, because this is actually about the branding. I will just add one more thing. Sure. I was giving a talk at a women's conference in North Carolina. It was me and 500 women. And I'm actually sharing this. And I'm sharing, if you have a negative brand, to try to empower the audiences, today is the day for you to change your brand. Yes. Yeah, like choose, choose as an adult, right? Exactly. Of what was given to you. Well, out of the corner of my eye, this older lady in her 70s stands up and starts waving her arms. It was kind of distracting because I'm like, I'm trying to give my talk, but I can't ignore her because she clearly wants some attention. <laughs> so then I stopped my talk and I turned to her and said, yes, ma'am. She goes, you know, after listening to you, I've decided to change my brand. And my brand, and she shared this in front of 500 strangers. I don't know if I would be that vulnerable or open to do what she did. I, the courage that she took, she goes, you know, for 70 plus years, I've been called fat, ugly, and stupid. And then a couple of cuss words. And, and I mean, the room got silent. Very quiet. You yeah. could hear a pin drop. So I was kind of taken aback at first. But then I'm like, okay, ma'am, well, what would you like? your brand to you your brand to be and her name was leah by the way so she says to me well from now on i want to be known as princess leah 
And I said, yes, your majesty. And I bowed down in front of her and the audience cracked Fantastic. up. They all started laughing. It became a very lighthearted moment. Yeah. Why do I share this story? Because if a woman in her 70s can empower herself to change her brand, that means anyone else can do it. Do not procrastinate your happiness and continue to live a life where you view yourself because you, you know what impact it has on our self-worth and self-esteem yeah. if we have a negative brand. Absolutely. Today's Absolutely. the day to make it, to, to change that brand. Yeah. Oh, it's such a great message uh, that you're delivering. And when that uh, branding comes from our parents, which is really the initial, that's the start of our identity, uh, it can be really damaging. And um, I, after hearing this story from you, I actually have been thoughtful about my own children and I realized maybe I haven't ascribed them a brand yet, but now I've proactively started. Uh, you know, you're the empath, you're the inquisitive right. one, uh, just positive things that you can tell them. Uh, my, my son is at the moment struggling in English class, but uh, he, he has a knack for understanding people, uh, even if he doesn't speak the language. So uh, I sent him that note and I sent him uh, a Senegalese musician because uh, uh, I find it very peaceful. He's, he's singing in his native voice, so I we, I don't know what he's saying, but I told him, son, you have a gift for understanding people, even if you don't speak the language. So I think you'll get something out of this the way I have, um, and you, you've encouraged me to do that. So uh, uh, it's it's a great message. Yeah, I think we all need to reevaluate how do we truly view ourselves, and because that directly impacts how much self care we do yeah. or don't. Right. That's right. Um, just our self-worth, our self-esteem, our self-defeating thoughts that eventually lead to self-defeating behaviors or self-destructive behavior is even worse, right? So all those things are connected. That's why I think this is really important. Yeah, no, it's so true. Well, going back to, to growing up in Greece, um, you became very fond of swimming and swam competitively. I did, I did very, yes. I was, I had a natural talent in swimming so i ended up you know becoming a national uh, greek swimming champion like one times in my career and was on the national team and you know when we moved to to america to southern california well that was one of the reasons why we moved there is because southern california has the best training mm -hmm. for swimming in the world so i was competing against the top people who were olympians and so on so it was a uh, very rewarding and you know sports you know, and I have all my gold, my silver, and my bronze medals right here in my office, and they're about the same number, meaning that I, I finished second as many times as I won, and I finished third as many times as I, as I won. So it teaches you about life, that yeah. you're not always going to win, and that's okay. It's actually good for you, and uh, sometimes you do finish second or third. I didn't place yeah. lower than that because I was very competitive, but for the most part, I was in the podium. <laughs> Fantastic. How old were you when you migrated to the States? 11. Okay. We moved to a little, oh, yeah. little seaside town in Los Angeles called Santa Monica. It was this gorgeous. Like, <laughs> you, know, you know, you're from LA. Santa Monica is Absolutely. this amazing town right on the water. I'm Greek, so I love the water. So this was great. Yeah, Except that we had palm trees in Santa Monica, which we didn't have in Greece, but in <laughs> the ocean, uh, a little different. Yeah. yeah. No, that's wonderful. Well, what uh, I know that you attended UCLA and then went on to uh, complete your doctorate there. Um, what sparked the interest in psychology while you were young? You know, when I was in middle school, I want to say, and I was 
fairly painfully shy as a boy. I didn't come into my own and the extrovert part of me didn't really uh, explode into the scene, if you will, until my mid-20s. So, mm. however, I remember in middle school, for some reason, both boys and girls would, would come and kind of share their secrets with me. Like they would mm. tell me things that they were like struggling with. I don't know why. They trusted me, I guess. And, and I was able to help them through empathy or through my positivity or whatever. I don't remember doing it like, but it was almost like a, a, a middle school psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> then I went to, you know, then I went to high school and in my senior year, Santa Monica High School, for the first time they taught a psychology class back in the day. It was the first psychology class at a high school, which I took and I fell in love. So when I went to UCLA, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I just love helping people. I mean, I know that's my purpose and I'm passionate about it. And now as I've gotten older, helping organizations and so on, I just love making a difference. And uh, it, it makes me happy, honestly. I mean, there's a direct link to my own personal happiness. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, after graduating, did you start your practice immediately or did you take- I did, so, so as a clinical psychologist, you need 3000 hours, right? Of kind of as an intern, almost like a residency if you're an MD. So I was doing that all along at a counseling center, which literally, it, it, this was in Westwood, very close to where you live, my friend. And yeah, people so would nice. literally come off the street. So I got to, I got the training of my life because you got all kinds of cases. And uh, you know, then I had a private practice when uh, we moved to Colorado, so yes. Oh, no, that's fantastic. And, and how long ago did you move to Colorado? It's been 25 years, so. Okay. Uh, 96 yeah, yeah exactly i was like 10 years seeing clients in california and then and then here and you know my whole practice was word of mouth like i've never marketed before in my life it was all just just word of mouth uh just uh doing the good work i basically love people i know that means not like what kind of psychologist are you what, what was your what was the trick it, it was love unconditional love and acceptance i work with a lot of addicts so you know addictions that was my dissertation. It was on Alcoholics Anonymous. So I know addictions inside and out. A lot of family therapy. Probably raised about 500 teenagers in, in my, you know, in my practice. So uh, anyway, and I loved it. I, I loved it kind of until the very end. Then I, you know, I got burned out. So. Well, yeah. And uh, I, I just want to dive into that. Um, I'm just curious. Um, you're a founding partner of the Global Institute for Thought Leadership. Um, when did that transpire? When did you become? This is relatively new. This happened as a result okay. of the pandemic. Um, in the middle of the pandemic, I uh, co-authored a book called Seven Keys to Navigating a Crisis, a practical guide to mostly dealing with pandemics and other disasters. And as a result, and this was early on in the pandemic, I was invited to the thought leadership group uh, on, on LinkedIn. Uh, and uh, that kind of grew, you know, as I share some of my thoughts and the impact that it has not only on individuals, but our organizations. Anyway, it, it's a fantastic group of about 30 of us from all over the world, thought leaders, everyone uh, with their own expertise. And after meeting every week, you know, towards the end of last year, we decided like, you know what, we have great brain power here, right? What are we doing here? Like, let's create something. So we created uh, what we call it the gift, you know, the Global Institute of Thought Leadership. And we're actually giving our first uh, two-day conference uh, across the globe where we're all going to be speaking in uh, later on this month. So it's pretty exciting. Wonderful. 
That's exciting. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, what a great Thank group you. to be a part of. Um, coming back to um, your practice and its growth, well, I'm just curious, what prompted the move to Colorado? Just my wife's family. We had our young, our oldest son was born in Santa Monica, and we wanted to have a, you know, our own home. Uh, and just her whole family was out here, so it supports just him, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That makes complete sense. Right. But and Boulder, so, Colorado is not a bad place to be. It always makes like the oh, top, you know, ten. It's not a. It's a nice. It's a lovely place to live. Well, and it's a cultural mecca. It's um, just the, the the people that you have there. Um, it's it's really a phenomenal spot. So um, couldn't agree with you more. Great choice uh, to to settle and and call home. Um, let's talk about um, the buildup of your practice and then this um, seminal moment. Or it was actually a two year period where you began feeling physically ill. And uh, you talk about how you ignored the signs that your body was telling you. Um, but yeah, I'd love for you to share that whole experience with the audience. Yeah, I think like the first 16 years, I so I practiced for 18 years, starting at the counseling center in Westwood. Uh, I loved every minute of it. And uh, you know, what I found out when I retired is that the average psychologist, if they see 25 patient hours a week, that's considered full-time. Uh, and they typically last for 10 years before they get burned out. Well, I did it for 18 years and I would see like 45 people a week, like insanity. My wife is like, you're going to have a heart attack. I'm like, no, I'm a Hercules. Like I'm great. Like the, the mythical hero, like I can, I can help. And you know, interesting, what other therapists couldn't handle, they would send them up to me like, oh, Dr. Gurus, he'll fix them. So I had, wow. I had difficult cases. It wasn't like, you know, like heart attacks. But at some point, you know, towards the end, I just started getting physically, you know, I was in pain, sick, just we couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. Um, but as you know, emotional or mental or spiritual or physical pain, if it gets bad enough, it eventually brings you to your knees, like literally. <laughs> so that's what happened to me. And I'm a spiritual person. So I kind of appeal to my higher power to, to guide and kind of trying to find some answers. Basically, why is this happening to me? I try to be a good husband and father. I try to help my community. I, I'm doing all this stuff. And the voice and the message that I got very clearly, as clearly as I'm talking to you, it seemed was, I'm trying to take you in a different direction, but you're not listening to me. Mm -hmm. which, was a, it, which was a one sentence, very short, not a lot of clarity beyond that. Well, guess what I did with that advice? I ignored it. Right. <laughs> I ignored it because... Because, you know why? Because I was afraid, like I have this thriving practice. Why would I give this up? You know, I'm like the doctor, blah, 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 that stuff, you know, all ego driven, by the way. Yeah. So I ignored it. Well, guess what happens if you ignore your, I don't care what you call that voice, your intuition, hmm. your higher self, your inner wisdom, that still small voice, the spirit of God, the Holy Ghost. I don't care what you call it. What I know, and I can testify to this in my own life, because I've heard it thousands of times. I'm very close to that voice. Every time I've heard it and acted on it, it's always worked out. It's one of the few absolutes in life. Mm -hmm. yeah. But because I'm a human being and I'm not, you know, always at my best, every time I've heard it and ignored it, I've always paid the price. Yeah. And unfortunately, back then, I paid a big price for ignoring it because my health got worse. And eventually, eventually just brought me to my knees and in the hospital and, you know, a couple of surgeries. I mean, I got another message that was much more, mm -hmm. much more powerful. 
basically saying i i want you to spread the light to a lot more people that was the message yeah, yeah. but if you don't listen to me i'm calling you home by the time you're 50 and i was like 42 i'm like holy and my mom died when she was 51 so i don't have like longevity with my parents my dad died when she was 65 so that message and i still had young kids at home like wait a minute i can't die in a few years like what exactly but it took something that severe for me to change course and i did it reluctantly and you know i my body paid a big price so in the end to, to make a long story short after a couple of surgeries and six long nights in the hospital and, and some scary moments um I, I did a lot of thinking yeah. and a couple of things came out of it like the the things that really matter in life are the three f's family faith family and friends mm. and the second thing is i asked my doctor i said why did this happen because i never want to be in this place again like this has been so hard and so painful he goes oh that's easy either excessive drinking or excessive stress and since i don't really <laughs> drink I knew that it was excessive stress, meaning that for 18 years and those thousands and thousands of hours, I was just storing everybody's, you know, the, the difficult thing, all the abuse, yes. the sexual abuse, this, that, and the other. I stored it in my body. You absorbed it all. But I was oblivious to it. I, I On the outside, it seemed like, hey, this is Dr. Ely, happy-go-lucky, he's always positive. And all. Well, guess what? I wasn't listening or paying attention to my body. I neglected yes. that. And then I paid a big price. It took me like a six months to recover, like physically to recover. Wow. And then I switched my life over to, you know, in the corporate world as an executive coach, leadership training and development. Uh, well, that was an interesting transition. And I've done it ever since. And I'll never get burned out again. This will never happen. Because you know the science. You listen to your body now. You're that intuition you listen to. I mean, I'm 15 years older and I'm healthier and happier and more balanced, you know, than I ever have before, because I, I learned a very painful lesson. I wouldn't suggest to do what I did. If you get any problems like that, don't ignore it for six months. Don't do what I did. <laughs> uh, su superb advice. So uh, share with us the steps you took to then have a voice or a, a platform that would reach so many more people. Well, initially, you know, I, like, what am I going to do now with my life? Like, I didn't know what to do. And I had a very good friend of mine who knew me as a psychologist and had given lots of referrals my way. It said, Ibe, you would make a great executive coach. Hmm. And at the time, I, I was like in my own little world. I'm like, what's an executive coach? I've only coached my kids <laughs> baseball and soccer. I don't know anything. He goes, you know, executives. Because I, I was completely out of the corporate world. So he had a consulting firm. He brought me on board. And it's he, like, I dove in the deep end of the pool, like C-suite. Like, it's... and I didn't even know the corporate lingo or anything. But what I realized is, you know, at the end of the day, when you close the doors and you're just with the CEO or the CMO or CIO, whatever, or senior executive VP, they're just people exactly. that have just as many issues. And because of my background as a psychologist, I was able to come at them in a completely different angle than any other consultant. And they really liked that a lot. I mean, they mm -hmm. opened up to me a lot, almost like, uh, you know, it was coaching, but uh, anyway, it was very intimate. And I was able to tell them things that nobody else had told them before, um, including the fact that I believe if you want to have a transformational change in your organization, you need to uh, support your employees' happiness levels. 
Now, mind you, this is back way before Gallup or Harvard had any studies. So they're like, they're looking at me going, you know, uh, Ilya, we love you. We think you're a great guy. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. I pay these people to go to, now go to work. I pay them to, to work, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and of course, we know now that happy employees are more engaged. They're yes. more productive. They're more innovative. They're more creative. They're better teammates. That's right. More likely to stay. More, Yeah, greater retention, less turnover. They're physically healthier. We don't even count that, meaning that they right. have less days off. And they, I mean, the cost savings, plus if you have, and if you treat your employees a certain way, uh, they give greater customer service. Yes, so true. All of those things in turn, of course, affect the bottom line and the profitability of your company or your organization. So luckily, now my, my work is a lot easier now because all these studies support what I used to say before. Back then, I was like a voice in the wilderness, like, yeah, 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 whatever. You're, you're a happy guy. We, we wouldn't need that. <laughs> <laughs> That's really great. W one of the things that uh, I've heard you speak about is the importance of, of self-forgiveness. And is that something that you talk to your C-suite level executives about? Absolutely. I, I think self-forgiveness is the ultimate act of self-compassion. I, because I've worked with so many people that have done all kinds of things in their lives. And especially if you're an addict and you go through the 12 steps program and you make amends to those you have hurt, you know, you, you, as you work your steps, well, they might forgive and ask for forgiveness from everybody else. Guess who's the last person they forgive by far. Yeah. Themselves. I know. It's, it's so sad and tragic. So yes, forgiveness is a big part of I don't think you can truly be happy. You, you may do all, all the other steps, but if you don't forgive yourself, imagine if you wake up every morning and before you brush your teeth, before you say good morning to your, your, your kids, you put on a backpack with a hundred pounds worth of rocks yeah. that represent resentments, anger, disappointments, discouragement, fear. I mean, I can go on. And you go through life with this extra weight, right? Well, the only way to un get rid of the backpack is to open it up and take all those rocks, little pebbles, big boulders, depending on whatever your issues are, and then forgive yourself. So you're so you wake up every morning without that extra weight. Yeah. And I take them, I have a process that I take people through. Like most people understand that self-forgiveness is important. They really don't know how to do it. Yeah. And so in my book, you know, Seven Paths to Lasting Happiness would became a number one bestseller on Amazon. I have a specific, this is how you do it. Nice. Love yourself. This is how you do it. I mean, this is what, I mean, if you just look on the reviews, it's like 97% positive. It, it looks like fake news. It looks like I wrote the reviews myself, <laughs> but I didn't know. And you know what they all say? It's like, Dr. Ian, we love your book, but it's not like you, you've said anything that Aristotle didn't say 2,500 years ago. Mm. Like really, what are the seven paths to happiness? Love yourself. Attitude of gratitude forgiveness, purpose and passion, be kind, have healthy relationships, connect with your spiritual side. There's nothing new here. I mean, that's been said before. But what we love about your book is that at the end of every chapter, you have a couple of points for the reader to consider, to ponder, meditate on, a couple of questions. And then we, we really love is your take action, meaning this is how you forgive yourself. And that's why the book has been so, uh, you know, it's resonated with people. Yeah, a lot of people. It's great to have those uh, calls to action because uh, oftentimes we read books like that and then it goes on a shelf and 
we don't apply it. No, and I say like knowledge without application is just education. And you're totally <laughs> right, that's it. No, think about it. this is what we do, right? Yeah. You and I could go out and read the top 10 books uh, on happiness, highlight them and underline them to death. And then when we're done, we put it back in the bookshelf, like you said, never to be read again. So now you and I are more knowledgeable about happiness, but our lives aren't any happier. And I believe we're actually more frustrated because we know more, mm -hmm. but our level of happiness hasn't uh, changed. Yeah, no, superbly said. Yeah. Um, tell us about the Happiness Center. Okay, so this is another one of those inspirations, like you like, right? When I exited from psychology, I have to, this is kind of embarrassing <laughs> because I got the inspiration that I need to get a domain name called the happinesscenter.com. I didn't know what a domain was. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I'm like, sure what's a domain gender. name? <laughs> yeah, I, but I, but I, like, I went and I did my search and all that stuff. And believe it or not, thehappinesscenter.com, nobody had that, so I got it, and I've had it for fifteen oh. years. And it's it's an organization of basically of world leading experts in the field of positive psychology. So we have uh, people in London and Hong Kong and Australia, um, just wonderful, wonderful people. And uh, we work with organizations, large and small, from Fortune one hundred to you know, even, you know, startup companies and help them to create a culture of happiness. So I'm a corporate wellness expert and a culture change expert, if you will. That's probably the best way to describe me now. Nice. No, that's fantastic. Um, your book that you talked about, The Seven Paths to Lasting Happiness, when did you write that? Five years ago. Okay. All right. And it's really become my, my I don't have business cards. I, I really don't. I don't. I physically have no business card. My book has become my business card because it opened up a lot of doors. It's been translated into five languages. Um, and it got me from, you know, I used to speak in the United States, probably most of the states I've spoken, most of the states, but not internationally. And this book opened me up to, you know, before the pandemic, London, Paris, Rome, Athens, wow. and invitations from Dubai to South Africa to like I've got, I mean, now everything's shut down, of course. But once it opens up again, I'll be speaking to a lot more continents beyond Europe and the US. Um, That's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm excited really for it. I mean, I love to travel and I love spreading the word. Um, but you know what's interesting? Every talk I give, regardless of the audience in the country, I ask them one question before mm -hmm. I start my talk every single time to the audience. And I'm like, if you were to ask any parent regardless of nationality, ethnicity, religious affiliation, socioeconomic status, gender, whatever, what would you like for your children? What is the answer to that question? And then I take my mic and I point it to the audience. And what do they say to me? I just want them to be happy. Yeah, and yeah. everybody says that. Like regardless of where I'm at, everybody says that. So that's the universality of happiness, which I really love because we're that connects us all, right? As, Aristotle said, happiness is the meaning and purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. Think about that. Yeah, that's it. No, that's potent. That's potent. Um, well, and of course, uh, happiness can mean something different to just about everybody. 
Um, but there are some commonalities. And what would you say are those commonalities that bring us happiness? I mean, I think you touched on it, the three Fs you talked about. Yeah, I mean, those to me are what's important to me. Uh, so relationship clearly. And when we talk about healthy relationships, like seriously, if you practice self-love, I mean, these are the paths, right? Gratitude, forgiveness, purpose and passion, connecting to your spirit, being kind and being of service to other people. But you surround yourself with toxic relationships. Mm. It's almost like it, it can wipe all that out. I mean, all the hard work that you do to, uh, for yourself. So I have a process that I take. Uh, first of all, identify if you have any toxic relationships in your life. And then there's a process. Here's how you get them out of your life. I made a conscious decision 15 years ago. I don't want any toxic people in my life. And I don't have any. And if somebody starts behaving that way, it's a very short conversation, which goes like this, by the way. Of course, I have to show up a certain way. So the conversation is, Asim, if I treat you with love, kindness, and respect, I expect you to treat me with love, kindness, and respect in return. Yep. As long as I show up that way, then I have that right and that expectation from you. And if you can't do that, you're out. You're out. No, but, oh, the, but we have to show up that way, right? I mean, obviously, if, if I'm a jerk to you, I can't expect you to treat me with love, kindness, and respect if I don't do that. So I need to show up first a certain way. But if I do, that's the, that's the comeback. Yeah, no, no, it's so true, the words you say. And sometimes it's challenging to do that. Um, uh, I, I've recently gone through that kind of purging, but it included family members. And sometimes it's not the easiest to do, but um, it's an important act of, of self-care, as you say. And of course, and people have pushed back, well, what if you're, you know, it's my mother-in-law or if it's the, you know, this or that. I'm like, I'm not saying to get rid of toxic people in your life. I'm saying to get rid of the toxicity those people bring into your life. Meaning if we, if we set healthy boundaries and we enforce them once, twice, by the third time, most people will get the message. And I'm like, you want me to be in your life? This is the way that need. if you can't do that, then I'm sorry. Until you're ready to treat me with love, kindness, and respect, you're not going to have access to me. Yeah. And I'm not rejecting. I'm just saying I'm standing up for myself and, and setting healthy boundaries. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and uh, I had the challenge of doing that with my own father. And uh, I certainly mourn not having that relationship or having his presence in my life or in the life, lives of my children. But it was the right thing to do. And uh, they're happier, my children, I'm happier. And so uh, it sort of uh, solidifies that it was the right choice. And it doesn't mean that it's sometimes it's forever, especially if it's family members. At some point, things right. change in their own lives, in your life. And yeah. You, know, you can always revisit that yeah. um but healthy boundaries i think it's a gift to those other people because you're helping them be better people mm, if you let them walk sense. all over you be toxic be critical be judgmental and then you're not helping them actually you're contributing right in quotes of course to the problem that's right no absolutely absolutely um you have this great phrase uh, that I've heard, uh, the university of adversity, <laughs> which we are all graduates of. <laughs> and, and the reason, and this falls under gratitude, right? We all have the, hear the phrase, let's have an attitude of gratitude. It's very cute and it rhymes and it's adorable. 
but it's very easy to be grateful when things are going well in one's life. I mean, that doesn't require a whole lot. Can we be grateful when things are not going well in our lives? And that's where I say we're all graduates from the University of Adversity because, and the older you get, the higher the degree, by the way, the more pain, the more disappointment, so on. Can we be grateful in the midst of that? What I have discovered is that happy people do three things differently and they do it consistently than the rest when it comes to adversity. Number one, they take personal responsibility for their actions, meaning that, you know, this is on me. Nobody put a gun to my head to behave this way, right? It's on me. I'm, I'm responsible for my life and myself. That's right. Yeah. Number two, they learn from their mistakes and their setbacks and their disappointments. And number three, which personally I think is even more important than one and two, they have the ability to let it go. Mm. Meaning I'm not going to carry something from 2020 was a tough year into 2021 or from last month to this month or from last week to this week or from yesterday to today. And the, re and the way that they're able to let it go is what you and I talked about before through the act of self-compassion by forgiving themselves. Mm. It does me no good to carry this load from last year to this year just because I made a mistake last year or even last week if I can forgive myself and move on. And therefore, they're much happier and they're actually much more successful in life. It's not just about happiness because I teach that to executives, even on an organizational level, own it. That was a mistake. That was a bad PR campaign or marketing or whatever, or a customer service experience. Bad, bad product launch. Yeah. The product, yes, exactly. Learn from it. Because the greatest lessons I'm sure you and I have ever learned in our lives came out of our setbacks and our disappointments, not through yes. our successes. That's right. right. Absolutely. And of course, then let it go because that's negative energy and you don't want that energy moving forward. And you'll be successful. People that do that consistently have wonderful lives. Hmm. No, that's so true. That's excellent. Um, you recently co-authored uh, a book, uh, Seven Keys to Navigating a Crisis. Share with us about that. It's right here. <laughs> it's, a, it's a small little book, but it's, a, it's, it's been very critically acclaimed. You know, on March 15th of 2020, which is a, a seminal day, beware the eyes of March, like Julius Caesar. Shakespeare <laughs> well said. Nice. I, I, I had this prompting that, Ilya, you need to write a book about the pandemic and you need to get it out in 45 days. And again, that was this, you know, the connection. To put this into perspective, my first book took three years to write. So 45 days sounded insane to me. And the whole point was people will need your book because there's, there's a tsunami of mental health issues and, yes. and other issues. You need to get out by May, not next November, not in 2021. So I called up my best friend and buddy and brother. And, I'm, and I told him, I said, uh, his name is Coach Khan Apostolopoulos. I'm like, I'm going to start writing this book tomorrow morning. Are you in or are you out? And he didn't hesitate a second. He goes, I'm in. Wow. And for the next 45 days, we did nothing else, head down, morning, <laughs> noon, and night. And the book came out in May. That's um, extraordinary. You know, what's really interesting is initially, we our initial thought was we, we want to help as many people as possible, yeah. like individuals, to navigate the multitude of crises that we're facing. Because it isn't just the pandemic or the mental crisis, as you know. It's the financial and economic crisis. We have the social uh, strife and political and racial and so on. And we're not even counting people's personal crisis, like going through a divorce or other stuff, right? So there's multiple crises. 
what we didn't anticipate was as the economy began to open up the first time, like in mid-June, I want to say, organizations were, started reaching out to us and saying, we need your help. We don't know what to do with our employees. They're scared. Huh. They're traumatized. They have PTSD. Wow. Some of them are refusing to come into work. Wow. We don't know what to do. So, And actually, the first company, big company that reached out to me was Bank of America in New York. Mm. Uh, they, we have a thousand employees. They're working remotely. Would you come in and, and help us do like a Zoom presentation, you know, how to navigate a crisis while maintaining employee engagement? And I did that. And then that's continued to happen with Fortune 100 companies, nonprofits, small companies, local. Everybody is facing the same challenges. Uh, and you know what the, the number one challenge, this comes from a, from a group of HR professionals that have done the research, is to ensure in any organization, to ensure the mental and physical well-being of their employees. That's number one. And number two, um, how to maintain employee morale, engagement, effectiveness, productivity. Well, guess what? You can't get to number two unless you get number one, right? Yeah, that's right. Circumstances. Yeah. No, and, and by the and the number one, like the idea to ensure the mental and physical being of our employees wouldn't even make the top 10 in the past. Yeah, right. that's true. This is new, yeah. Totally new. No. So well, we, and yeah. No, just say you, you've been a big part of that awareness that has happened because of your good work. Yeah, and, and I mean, I love seeing organizations change. And uh, Coach Khan and I, we're not talking about the new normal. We're talking about what, the next normal. Mm, like nice. when we talk about leaders, what is the next normal? Yeah. Because, yeah. yes, we're going to have, you know, the vaccines are coming, even though the numbers are still pretty high. But eventually, things will get better than they are right now. But they're never going back to the way they were before. Right. And, and this is why flexibility and adaptability is so crucial, both in, on an individual basis and organizational basis, you know, resilience in essence. So we yeah. pound that message to, to leaders. No, no, that's superb. That's a great message. Um, we talked a little bit about the calls to action that you have at the end of your your chapters and, and your books. And a lot of them revolve around being of, of service to others. Um, tell us about the importance of that to contributing to our happiness. Yeah, you're right. Both books, the, I mean, we both start with like self-love and self-care and, and end with service and kindness. And there's a reason for that. First of all, happy people perform acts of kindness because their batteries are full, right? Mm. On the flip side, when we perform acts of service and kindness, innately something happens to us that makes us feel happy. We've all had that experience. So I do call, and I, and I do like interviews like two or three times a week, every week since last May. My last call to action is this, go out and serve somebody else. However, on, on live, like live TV or live this, I've gotten pushback from people, from the audience. Like seriously, like Dr. Ely, are you serious? You want to go and help somebody else? I'm depressed, I'm stressed, I'm anxious. I'm out of work, I don't have any money. I'm drowning myself and you're telling me to go and help somebody else? What am I, my brother's keeper? This is an actual quote, by the way. I'm not, <laughs> you know what? I push back, I'm like, no, you're not your brother's keeper. 
you're your mother's keeper and your sister's keeper and your friend's keeper and the neighbor's keeper and the homeless person down the street or someone that's 10,000 miles away in India, you are their keeper too. Because in the end, we're all brothers and sisters. And if you can hear the sound of my voice, I guarantee you're better off than somebody else. All you got to do is look around. So go out and serve somebody else. Wow. 90% of the time, that actually silences the opposition. (laughs) (laughs) But there's some people that are like, okay, okay, I I see what you're saying, but I'm trapped. I'm, you know, I'm quarantined. I'm in my house. I can't help anybody. This is the pushback. Again, excuses. I'm like, listen, an act of service or an act of kindness doesn't mean you even have to leave your chair right here. That's right. But if you get a prompting, and we all get those if we're open to them, awareness, listen to that still small voice, to reach out to somebody else, do it and do it immediately. Don't even ask why. I've had multiple, multiple uh, opportunities to serve other people strictly by listening and then acting upon it, getting on a text, texting them, getting on a Zoom call halfway across the world and saying, hey, I'm thinking about you. How are you doing? Brilliant. I love like that. I see, what's the worst thing that somebody can say back to us if we ask them how they're doing? What's the worst thing they could say? I'm fine. Why are you calling? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Everything okay with you? Why are you reaching out? <laughs> right. Or, no, but a... more likely than not, most of the times, I would say 90% of the time, people have said to me, well, it's kind of funny that you, you reached out because I'm really struggling. Yeah. Right. So that's why. It's amazing how we develop that sense. There's, a, it's just like there's a pathway of communication um, that uh, uh, evolves or uh, forges between people, and it's extraordinary when it happens. And I'm so glad that you you uh, suggested that and highlighted that because I've I've had that impulse a number of times. Um, could be working. Pardon? Don't ignore it. Yeah, don't ignore it. Exactly. Yeah, uh, you know, walking into a meet. Like, actually, this just happened this weekend. Reached out to a friend of mine in Singapore. It turns out that uh, his father has contracted COVID. He's in a hospital in Buenos Aires, and my friend's trying to manage that from a distance, and uh, it's exceptionally challenging. Um, but yeah, I could offer some words of support, and that that meant something to him. So uh, I, I completely agree with your advice here. And I also take that to senior leaders and you know HR senior leaders, especially in in with remote workforce, because a lot of people still have not come back to work. My training with them, and very specifically, is I know you have a weekly check-ins with your folks, and that's what you tell everybody else. But it's got to go a lot more than how are you doing today, Asim? That doesn't go very far. Mm-hmm. I you have to train your people. And close the door. If, if you have anybody that reports to you, and this, you're talking to your direct reports, close the door, lean into the camera and say, how are you really doing? Hmm. How's your family? How are your kids? Is there anything that we can do? Is there anything that I can do personally to help and facilitate this very difficult time that we're going through? And if you really want extra credit as a leader, I ask them to be vulnerable and open and transparent, meaning that, you know what? I'm really struggling too. It's been really hard here in my home. You know, my wife is going crazy because we have all three of our kids are not going to school and it's the chaos in here and it's just overwhelmed and I'm overwhelmed and, you know, the kids are all cramped in our apartment, whatever. Like, be honest, open, transparent. 
what this will do is will align you in an empathetic way with your employees because they're going to be like ah you know he's feeling it too and they can relate with you you can't be like how are you doing because everything's good with me but are you okay yeah. can i do anything for you no okay okay we'll get to work now that type of leadership no longer works yeah so true so and again we'll go back to the original what's the biggest challenge organizations have ensuring the mental and physical well-being of their employees well you got to do that with a lot of empathy and love so yeah. as leaders we need to show up very differently like much higher ei right yeah oh brilliantly said um you have a great uh, mantra or message for 2021 the extra mile lane is never crowded right and, and, and what i just shared with you is an example of what the extra mile lane looks perfect like example yeah right absolutely yeah yeah don't we can't go through the motions anymore and expect our people to be at their best because they're struggling yeah. we're all struggling and i heard this thing i wish i could come up with brilliant but i didn't come up with it so i can't take credit for it but i'll share with you we may not all be on the same boat but we're all in the same storm mm. that's perfect i really like that meaning our circumstances might be different but we've all been impacted let's not kid ourselves every single one of us yeah yeah no, that's fantastic how people deal with challenges and crises mm. and what we have found out is that there are typically four personality types okay right. the first one's called the victim the, and the victim of course is why is this happening to me like for me <laughs> as if it's only happening to them and not seven billion other people okay so but the victim is like poor me they get sad they get depressed they, you know then we have what we call the critic now the critic criticizes everything and everyone, regardless of what the federal, state, or local government says, or the World Health Organization, or the United Nations. They criticize everything. For example, Ilya, you should wear a mask when you go outside. Well, that's stupid. Okay, Ilya, don't wear a mask when you go outside. What are you trying to do? Kill me? <laughs> they criticize everything on either side. Right? Yeah, yeah. Then we have what we call the bystander. Now, mind you, this is a good person. But think of someone with a deer with a headlights look. They are so overwhelmed by the stress, mm. the changes that are happening and the feelings of out of control. So they basically are frozen in fear and they do nothing. They might look to their neighbor left and right, but they don't take, you know, and what all three of these personality types have in common is that they don't move the needle. They don't mm. offer any solutions. There's no positive outcome as a result of the way they approach challenges, right? Then we get to the fourth personality type, which we like to call the navigator, mm. which of course was the basis of this book. And the navigator begins with self-care, like practices massive self-care, meaning they take care of themselves physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. They listen. They connect to their intuition, that inner wisdom. They practice kindness. They have a positive attitude, you know, and they're very flexible and adaptable and so on. The critical aspect of this question however is and this is my psychology hat that i'm wearing right now that all four of those personalities that exist within each human being mm. we all have them and here's a specific example mm. back in march when I, I was supposed to speak all over the world in 2020 i had like engagements all over the place i was supposed to be in barcelona in october i ended up doing the conference but it was here on zoom 
Not the same thing as Barcelona, believe me. Not the... So in one week, I see all my, in, I got email after everything got canceled in one week. Yeah. And did I have the deer with the headlights look like, oh no, what am I going to do now? Was I frozen in fear? And did I feel like a victim? Like, why is this happening to me? Of yeah. course. And have I been critical of the federal government's response in the past? You're darn right, I have, and rightly so, I believe. Yeah. However, if I stay critical for six months, I'm robbing myself of my own personal happiness. If I feel like a victim, I'm robbing myself of my... So the call to action is this. If you feel like a victim, do it for a couple of hours, feel sorry for yourself, you know, get, jump into your feelings, and then pivot and become a navigator. You want to be critical for a while, criticize for 30 minutes, just vent, yell, scream, do whatever, and then pivot and become a navigator. Because what happened? Soon enough, I navigated and called up my friend and we wrote a book called Seven Kids Navigating a Crisis. There were no plans in 2020 for me to write a book. My life was so busy, I had no plans, none. So, but I knew I couldn't speak. I knew I couldn't travel. I knew I couldn't do that. What could I do? What do I have control over? And interestingly enough, because I've gone back, I've spoken in front of more people in 2020 than I ever have in my whole life. Wow. I've done the math. It's about 40 to 50,000 people across wow. the globe. Obviously Super. here, I didn't travel, you know, but the sphere of influence and the impact that it has has grown because exactly. I was flexible and adaptable. And I said, I know I can't travel to Barcelona. I know I can't travel to London. I know I can't go to Dubai. What can I do? And, and I pivoted. So think about how we can do that in our own personal lives. And again, as leaders in our organization, stop being a victim, you know, vent if you need to for a little bit, but then become a navigator and create a different life for yourself and for your company. Superb advice. Well, that's excellent. Ilya, thank you so much again. This was an exquisite conversation. I, I know you've inspired many and uh, we'll get all your details out there. And uh, I think a lot of our audience will want to connect and reach out and have you share your pearls of wisdom with, uh, with their groups. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. It's been a pleasure. I, I, I just love your energy, Asim. I just the uh, well, your, your mind. And I look forward to you and I connecting uh, not on the air, off the air and uh, continuing our friendship that we're developing. It's been great. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Absolutely. I've thoroughly enjoyed it as well. And you can count on it. I, I will be uh, a pest. Oh, no, you'll never <laughs> Hopefully a, a, a pleasurable nuisance. <laughs> you know what? The great thing about getting older is that I only want to work with people I enjoy working with now. I don't have to work with anybody else. And I thoroughly enjoy your spirit, I, your intellect, uh, your inquisitiveness, and just your good heart. And I see what Thank a good man you are. And thanks for all you did to make this world a better place. But uh, let's do this again sometime. We shall, absolutely. And that means so much to me. Thank you for your uh, very kind words, it, especially coming from you, Ilya. That really means a lot. Well, the other thing about getting older is that I don't have to pay people compliments unless I mean them. So <laughs> it comes from the heart. Like, I don't Precisely. Know. Yeah, I if felt I, the weight I of that. It's, I mean it from my heart. And, and you know, from the first time I met you, I felt that connection. Uh, you know, we have a lot of things in common, our Southern California, our soccer craziness. And oh, yes. Enjoy, so. yeah. All right. Yeah. Good to see that you, my fantastic. friend.